Become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have been, over the last few weeks, talking about what it means to move forward from a carefree life to a committed one. And we began by talking about God, who is uh, the being most capable of being truly and completely free, who instead is the one we know as the maker and keeper of promises, the God of covenants and commitments. And then we talked over the last couple of weeks about our commitments about our financial commitments, about our commitments to other people. Uh, And today I want to talk about the most important commitment in our life, um, that we make to God. It seems to me that it is easy for us to misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. And and, and this has happened for a whole host of reasons, um, but we have sort of watered down what that means. And so Sometimes we talk about being a Christian and we say, well, uh, when I was a child, I was baptized, so I must be a Christian. Or we say, well, I'm a, I'm a member of a church somewhere, so I must be a Christian. Or we say, uh, I go to church at least twice a year, whether I want to or not, so I must be a Christian. Or very often, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, therefore I must be a Christian. And I am for all of those things, except for I'd like you to come to church more than twice a year. But otherwise, I'm for all of those things. But none of those capture what it means to follow Jesus. I think about this in sort of human relationship terms. Imagine if when I was born, my parents made an arranged marriage with Christa's parents and said, hey, one day uh, Jim's going to marry your little girl. And imagine if I said, well, I had that arranged marriage, so I'm I'm married already. Uh, I'm a good husband. I had an arranged marriage. Or uh, I'm a good husband because we live in the same country together. Or I'm a good husband because twice a year uh, on her birthday and on some other celebration, I come and say, hey, um, I really, really believe, Krista, that you exist. You are a real person, and I really believe you're out there great, right? I mean, it helps to believe someone exists to be in relationship with them, but it's not what God's looking for, right? It's not enough. It's not the summary of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, To be a follower of Jesus means something profoundly different, right? Not just to believe in Jesus, but to believe Jesus. Not just to trust in Jesus, but to trust Jesus, to live our lives in some form of commitment, trusting and doing what he told us to say and to do. Uh, Jesus had a different perspective on discipleship than we do. We, we, I think, in an earnest and and understandable desire to get as many people into the church or into heaven as possible, we we try to make it as simple as possible, right? Jesus never did that, and he never did that. Uh, Jesus preaches all these sermons where he says, it is really hard to be my disciple, and maybe you shouldn't even do it if you're not willing to pay the cost. Uh, Another sermon he preaches like this one comes to mind in the Gospel of John, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
And he feeds the 5,000, and he's got this huge crowd following him, and they're all amazed at this miracle he's done of multiplying the bread of the fish. And, and then he preaches the most difficult sermon he ever gives, I think, in the Gospel of John, and he whittles that crowd down from 5,000 to 12. He's not good at church growth, we'd say that about Jesus. Um, but, but Jesus seems to think that he can do more with those truly committed 12 than the 5,000 carefree people who um, believe in him but maybe don't yet believe him. Uh, a metaphor comes to mind for me. Um, in the Rothschild Aquatic Center where my family goes to swim, you know, when it's warm and wonderful, uh, it's an incredible pool and great for my kids. And one of the best things about it is it has a zero entry which means basically you can walk in and as you walk in the water slowly gets deeper you don't have to jump off a cliff right you just slowly walk into the water great for little kids great for asher when he was young as he was just getting accustomed to the water um, but it presents a potential problem right because you can walk into that pool and you can never get very wet you can go to the pool all day long and play with your kids. And, um, you know, if you're like me and you worry about it, never have to worry about what happens to your hair. I mean, you just, you just stay the same. Uh, you, you don't ever have to swim. And, and, I, and I think this is the, the, the thing that Jesus calls us to do. He says, I'm not interested in people that get their feet wet. I'm interested in people that will go all in with me. Right? I, I want you to jump into the deep end. I want you to commit your whole life. I want you to be swimming. I want it to mess up everything. I want it to be all-consuming. I want you to be all in. Right? That's the, what the committed life, the discipleship life looks like. So I want to think about um, three components of what it means to be all in with Jesus, what it means to be um, fully committed to following Him as our Lord and Savior. And the first thing is that being all in with Jesus means we buy in to the whole gospel. We buy in to the whole gospel. Jesus tells this story about a man who builds a tower. And, and this is a, really a, a fantastic illustration for so many ways. He says, um, which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Uh, I think that in our world today, um, the partial gospel is the unfinished tower that makes us look ridiculous. Uh, and the, the partial gospel is a, a, a decision to say, hey, I, I believe some of the stuff that Jesus said, right? Some of that stuff is really great and helpful and I like it. But you can't build a tower with some of the stones required. You can't build a place to live in with a foundation and no walls and no roof. And, and we really need the whole gospel, the whole message of Jesus. Gospel means good news. The whole good news of Jesus is critical for us. There was, in 1974, an uh, international conference on world evangelism put together by Billy Graham and John R.W. Stott. It was in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. And they produced a, a wonderful document that became the statement of faith for many um, missionaries and ministries and churches over the next 30 plus years. And in it, they have a wonderful phrase that I love. They say that we are called, that the whole church is called to share the whole gospel with the whole world. I, I, I love that. The whole church, 
called to share the whole gospel with the whole world. Uh, so I came across this uh, little whiteboard video that explains a little bit of what it means, uh, and particularly I want you to pay attention to what the whole gospel sounds like. Dan, can you play that video? Churches are full of people, the broken, the lonely, the wanderers, the hopeful, the enthusiastic, the lost, the passionate, and the faithful. For many, this gathering represents the whole of their church experience. They'll listen attentively to a message, they'll sing a few songs, they'll be invited to pray, and then they'll return to their lives. But for some, questions will start bubbling to the surface of their faith. Is this the extent of what Jesus intended for his followers? Who is the church for? Why does the world need the church, and what is the church after all? Well, the church isn't the building where people attend weekly services. It's not a program, a list of rules, or a philosophy. The church isn't a political affiliation, a country club, or a holiday tradition. The church was never intended to be just an assembly of people wearing nice clothes and saying nice things. The church is all the followers of Jesus everywhere. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. It's the combination of two words, ek, which means out, and kaleo, meaning called. Thus the church, the ecclesia, means the called out ones. In other words, the church, the collective body of all the followers of Jesus everywhere, is called out by someone for something, for a purpose. The beginning of the book of Acts has Jesus calling his disciples to a task, bringing something called the gospel, the good news, to all the world. And this gospel would go out to all the outsiders, the forgotten, the abandoned, and the excluded. And they, those outsiders, would see and receive that good news as actually good. And when Jesus talked about the gospel, it was always in conjunction with something else, something called the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, God's purposes are made apparent. There's justice and righteousness. There's hope for the poor and for the oppressed. And under the kingdom of God, mercy and forgiveness take precedence over bitterness and resentment. Now, people previously deemed to be far from God are brought into his family, adopted as his sons and daughters. And the fullness of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is not merely expressed as a way for people to escape an evil world when they die. Rather, the good news of God's kingdom is about the announcement of God's eternity moving into the present world and carrying on into the life to come. The people who belong to Jesus join him in his worldwide restoration project. And the called out ones, the church, are committed to advancing this good news of God's kingdom into the world. Not as a means of helping people avoid the world, but rather to see God's kingdom life being made real here and now. The whole church with the power of the whole gospel for the whole world. I believe that the hope that we have as the people of God is rooted in the whole gospel. It is supposed to be really good news when we hear it. Um, but sometimes we treat the gospel a little bit like we're shopping in a supermarket. And we pick out the parts that we like and we leave behind those that we don't. Right? I really like this part about eternal life and about God always being with me. But I'm not crazy about this whole bit about restrictive morality and all Christians must suffer as Christ suffered. And so let's leave those on the shelf. Let's just take the ones that we enjoy. I, I, I really enjoy the idea of the moral teaching of Jesus. And so let's pull that out and put it in our cart. But let's leave behind that whole he says he's God in the flesh thing because that seems awkward and weird. 
Or, uh, geez, I, I really love the call to, to love my neighbor as myself, and so I want to do that on a regular basis, but I don't really feel a need to, to express affection to God or worship God or gather with others to serve God because you know, that's not that important to me, right? I just pick the parts that I like and I put them in my cart. Uh, and, and I worry uh, that when we do that, it's like we're building a tower and we didn't plan ahead. And we don't realize that eventually the rain will start coming down and we've got no roof. And the wind will come and there are no walls. And, and a little bit of the gospel isn't enough, right? We need the whole story of God. We need the whole promise of God's coming kingdom. And Jesus particularly points out this one thing. He says that whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Uh, and that means that part of, of following Jesus, the work of faith, is to recognize that it's not going to be easy. This isn't a system for making our lives more simple or more happy. It is a system for bringing us more joy. It is a system that gives us purpose. But Jesus promises the life of faithfulness will be difficult, uh, that we will carry a cross. It will be a challenge. But as Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing costs nothing and suffers nothing is worth nothing so first i want to ask how are you growing in your understanding of the whole gospel are there parts of of the core message of jesus that you love and are so excited to pull into your life and are there parts that you struggle with and say gosh you know i'd, I'd rather leave that one on the shelf for a little bit longer are you in the Word? Are you reading Scripture? Are you reading through the stories of Jesus so that you can discover the whole gospel, so you can get the whole message? And in your relationship with Jesus, where is the cross? Where is that component where you are called um, to experience some of the suffering of Jesus? Because that's part of the story. Uh, and there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. What does your tower of theology look like today? So the first thing to be all in with Jesus is to buy into the whole gospel, his whole message, right? The second thing about being all in with Jesus means we have to give over our whole lives, our whole lives. And, and Jesus has another great illustration. He says, what king going out to wage war against another king will not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Okay, so two things here to make sense of what Jesus is saying. The first is, I think in this story, it's not just a story of of planning ahead of, of measuring the cost of discipleship, I think we can also read this as the king with 10,000 soldiers is me and the king with 20,000 soldiers is God. Uh, and I have to assess whether I can win over God or not. And if not, if my life isn't lived perfectly, if I can't make it without him, um, then I need to sue for peace. I need to go to God and say, hey, um, this is my unconditional surrender to you. Uh, I, I want to go where you go and, and do what you do, and I give my whole life over to you. I'm not keeping any part of it back. And I think this is what Jesus means uh, in verse 33 when he says, 
none of you may become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Um, I, I don't want to belittle the significance of our material commitment to God. We've talked about that recently. But I also don't believe that his main point is that all Christians must give 100% of their possessions to the church or to the poor or whatever. In fact, last week we read the story of Zacchaeus. Two weeks ago, we read the story of Zacchaeus, where he gives half of all he has to the poor and four times back to those he has defrauded. Jesus doesn't say, well, half isn't enough, right? Jesus says, the salvation has come to this house, right? Because this too is a son of Abraham. I think Jesus wants to communicate to us that when we surrender to God, recognizing that he is greater than us and accepting peace on his terms, we can't hold anything back. There can't be something where we say, hey, yeah, I'll give you my life, but not this part of my life. Jesus is saying, no, you've got to give over everything. There's a, another famous story about a guy called the rich young ruler. Shows up in Luke chapter 18. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus quotes the commandments, some of the Ten Commandments to him. And he says, teacher, all of these I've kept since my youth. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, take all that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And this guy walks away sad because he has great wealth. And, and I think the core of that story is that Jesus is saying, yes, of course, what you do with your wealth matters. But Jesus is saying, this is the area of this guy's life that he hadn't yet given over to God, right? He'd given over so much of his life. He'd given over a commitment to not uh, commit adultery or not murder or not steal, to honor his father and mother, to, um, to not covet his neighbor's wealth or relationships. But this part, he wanted to hold back. And Jesus says, to follow me, you can't hold anything back. So we get this other really weird bit in this story where Jesus says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Um, please do not misunderstand me. Please don't go back to um, your parents or your kids and say, well, J Jesus said I have to hate you. Right? That, that's not the point. Jesus is saying, um, in, a, in a comparative sense, you've got to choose me before all these other things. Right? He's not saying don't love your parents. He's not saying don't love your children. He's not saying don't love your friends or your spouse. He's saying love me more than all of them. Love me more than all of them. That, that um, slogan that went uh, sort of viral a while ago was I am second, right? And I love that idea uh, that I am second, that in this world um, there are many things that are important to me, but God will always come first and I come second. And everything else compared to God comes second as well. And, and I think this is the critical component of our discipleship. After we accept the whole gospel, we have to give over to Jesus our whole lives. And it's so tempting for us to not, right? Jesus, why don't you take, why don't you take the living room and the guest room, but just if you would do me a favor, stay out of the kitchen and the bedroom and the basement, that'd be great. And Jesus says, no, I want your whole life. I don't want you to hold anything back. I, I heard a parable um, from a, a Haitian pastor. Uh, the parable was um, that a man wanted to sell his house. He wanted to sell it for $2,000. Uh, and 
There was a buyer, but the buyer was a really poor guy. He couldn't afford that price. So after a lot of negotiation, he ultimately agreed to reduce his price to just $1,000. He cut it in half, but he made a deal with the prospective buyer. He said, you can own all of the house except for one nail over the door of the front door on the inside of your house. So the man made the purchase, gave the money. Um, A few years later, the original owner of the house decided he wanted it back. And the new owner was unwilling to sell. So that first owner went and found the carcass of a dead animal. And he hung it on that one nail on the inside of the front door that was his. Pretty soon, the house was unlivable. And the owner sold it back. And the the moral of the story that this pastor told was, um, when you give your life to Jesus, right, when you you buy into him and walk away from the world, if you leave even the smallest bit of the world left over, even a single nail the enemy can use, uh, you can lose everything, right? That Jesus needs it all. So I want to ask you today, as you look at your life, Um, As you look at your relationship with Jesus, are you giving over your whole life or are you holding something back? Um, Is there a a component of your life that you know Jesus wants to speak into, uh, but that you keep saying, no, Jesus, let's talk about that later? And and recognize this is a process, right? I mean, we we jump in and say, I'm I'm all in, but then over time we discover. So um, even though you may be wholly committed to God, What's the new thing that he's raising up an awareness of in your life where you say, ah, that's my nail that I have to get out, right? Because it's from the previous owner and it's starting to stink. Uh, If you don't think that you can beat that other army, right? If you can't beat God, then you better surrender unconditionally. So being all in means accepting the whole gospel, and it means um, giving over our whole lives, and it also means um, that we have to be faithful, we have to be committed in this relationship the whole time, the whole time. And and, and I come to this story in Exodus, which I love, this incredible high water moment of the Israelites where they make their promise to God, uh, where they accept this covenant, and where they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And i got to believe at this moment, they do, and it's an Old Testament understanding, but they do understand the whole gospel as it has so far been presented. They get the message of God. And I think at this point, they really are in with their whole lives. Right? They're saying, everything you've told us, we will do. And at this moment, it's kind of easy to do, right? Because, hey, there's the mountaintop and God's speaking um, audibly in a voice that we can all hear and fire and clouds and thick darkness and um, the elders are going up and having like lunch with God and coming back down and telling us about it. And in that moment, it's easy to be faithful. We can be all in when we're being watched. We can be all in when mom and dad are in the room. We can be all in when it's Sunday morning, but God's probably not watching what I'm doing Sunday afternoon, right, or Sunday evening. And when mom and dad walk away, that's, you know, maybe that's the most important part of who I am. What do I do when no one's around? All in means the whole time. My life and my commitment to God is not limited to those moments when I am in awe of Him, but all those moments, those moments 
when I become so comfortable with him that the smoke and the darkness and, and the storm and the mountain fade into the background. We know what happens in this 40-day stretch after Moses leaves, right? Right after this promise, we know the people make a golden calf from their gold jewelry and they begin to worship it. And they stray, right? And they forget. And they're not all in, at least not the whole time. So the call for us as believers is that there are no vacations from discipleship, that we're called to be all in the whole time. Um, But here's the good news, right? The good news for us is that uh, Jesus is also all in for us. He is all in for us with the whole message of God, with his whole life, and the whole time he is with us. He is working for us. He is redeeming us. He is the maker and keeper of promises, the God of covenants and commitments. And he has been there for us, even before we knew him, even when we have wandered away the whole time. I came across this song I want to share with you about God's faithfulness to us.
Jesus, we love because you first loved us. We commit to you because you first committed to us. We want to be all in with you, the whole gospel, our whole selves, the whole time, because you were all in for us, that the whole time you have been carrying us and holding us. You gave your whole life for us, even to death, even to death on a cross. You bought, you brought the whole good news of God and told us of all you have planned. God, uh, we know that